in the video that Eric Wood, our technical director, created uh, and showed about three weeks ago for our 10th birthday here at the venues, uh, Barbie Pohl, our executive director, said in that uh, video that when the venue first started, it came out of an organization that we started called Out of the Box Ministries. Out of the Box Ministries came from a recognition, the title did, that a lot of us had uh, lived in a theological and spiritual box. The box was something like, think of God in this way and no other way. Think of the Bible in this way and no other way. Or think of people in this way or no other way. In 2012, David Hayward, one of my favorite cartoonists, came up with this cartoon. It's not up there. Let's see if I can find it. There it is. Come on, God, get in there. 2012 was a pivotal year for me. That was a year that I made the transition from my previous church to this church, 2013, and came on to this church. But a few years prior to 2012 that led to my transition in 2012, I began to realize that maybe the God was bigger than the box in which my religion, the religion that I had been born into, was raised in, educated in, uh, maybe God was bigger than the box that that religion had created. The Apostle John tells a story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. That story is found in John chapter 3. Now, the story of Nicodemus is not just a, uh, an entrance ramp to get us to John 3.16 and to the football game. It's actually the story of someone that I think is evolving in their faith right before our eyes. Where you see, Nicodemus, like me, was part of a system, a religious system, and it was a box for Nicodemus. It was a box into which they shoved God. We can only think of God in this way, the Bible in this way, and people in this way. Nicodemus's particular box the system in which Nicodemus was raised and in which he lived saw God as punitive, saw God as prejudiced, that God favored one group, their particular group, over every other group. And as Jesus did with most individuals that he encountered, he challenged Nicodemus to get out of his box and to let God out of the box. And Jesus brings it home with this particular verse. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, well, how can these things be? The word that is translated spirit there in verse 8, and the word that is translated wind in verse 8 are the exact same Greek words. So the different English translation just comes from the translators and as they look at the context. But it's really from the same Greek word, pneuma. And that word pneuma 
We use it for the word pneumonia, pneumatic. It talks about pushing breath, taking in breath. And it's all about just uh, the movement of air, air in motion. And the idea of air in motion is this. I'm not sure. We got a new system, and I'm not used to, because what you're seeing back here is not what I'm seeing, and I'm not used to this yet. So let me go right there. That's where I want to be. So the idea of breath as spirit, of spirit as breath, goes back to the very name that God identified himself with when he spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God said, well, tell them I am sent you. And the Hebrew for I am is this Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh is a word that was so revered by the Hebrew people that it was almost unspeakable. In fact, the Jewish mystics would not speak the word, but they said the word is only to be breathed. So from the very beginning, the name Yahweh, God's name, was associated with breath. Yahweh, synonymous with breath. You breathe the word Yahweh. So just think with me for a moment. You've got a newborn baby just made the entrance to the planet, and that baby takes their first breath. And when the baby takes their first breath, Maybe that baby is saying the name of God. That baby grows up, becomes a teenager, a, a college student, young individual, then becomes a senior adult. And at some point, a baby, now an adult, dies. And we say about someone who dies that they took their last breath. We start with the first breath, we end with the last breath. We start and end with the very name of God. The name of God is at the beginning and at the end of our life upon this earth. And the impact of that is pretty huge. It's pretty exciting. Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, says this, There is no Islamic, Christian, or Jewish way of breathing. There is no American, African, or Asian way of breathing. There is no rich or poor way of breathing. The playing field is utterly leveled. The air of the earth is one and the same air, and this divine wind blows where it will, which appears everywhere. He then goes on to say, no one and no religion can control His spirit. Now, when I consider this aspect of the name of God, the person of God, as personified by the breath, what that tells me is that God is suddenly available and accessible as the very thing that we all do constantly, and that is breathe. Now, this available and accessible God that is as close to us and as much a part of us as our breath, is kind of an out-of-the-box God. Just can't control this God. No religion owns this God. No group has a, has a corner on the market of this God. Brian McLaren, one of my favorite teachers, 
uh, speaks of a time in his life when he was evolving in his faith, experiencing a reframing of his faith. And he says that it seemed like at that time God said to him, Brian, you have never had a thought of me that is bigger and better than what I actually am. And that means basically that all of my thoughts about God are smaller and worse than what God actually is. This God who is bigger and better than any thoughts that we would ever imagine is a God that was experienced by Hagar. Hagar was a slave of Abraham and Sarah. Not just any slave, but Hagar was a sex slave, a womb slave. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was unable to get pregnant. And so they made an arrangement or they coerced whatever method was used. The scripture really doesn't say Hagar into becoming a sex slave for Abraham, a nod to Handmaid's Tale. And it's hopefully that she would get pregnant and bring to Abraham a son. And the plan worked. Hagar did get pregnant and had a son named Ishmael. Now, in Hagar's day, everyone knew that the gods... Uh, cared about powerful men and very likely about the wives of powerful men, but everybody knew that the gods didn't care much for a sex slave like Hagar. Well, Hagar gets kicked out of the house. She finds herself and her son, whom she named Ishmael, in the desert. And she's thinking, this is it. It's all over for me. Then she hears a voice speaking to her. And this voice is of a God who's much bigger and much better than she had ever imagined this God could be. And she sees that this is a God who sees her. That's what the word Ishmael means. God sees me and cares for her. In later years, Abraham discovered a God who was much bigger and better than the God that he had imagined. In Abraham's net day, everyone knew that God got pretty angry with you. And in order to appease God's anger, you had to sacrifice a human. It was a common practice in Abraham's day. And it was not unusual at all for you to see a father and a son go to a mountain of sacrifice what was unusual was to see the father and the son come back down the mountain of sacrifice. And that's what happened to Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham took Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him. But he came back down the mountain with Isaac because on that mountain, God showed himself to Abraham. And Abraham discovered a God that was much better and much bigger than he had ever imagined. He saw a God that maybe did not require a sacrifice. Well, fast forward about 1,300 years from the life of Abraham, and we have the Hebrew prophet Hosea, 
who also was trying to get his head around this whole sacrificial thing, all these sacrifices of animals to appease God. And Hosea expressed a new thought. He saw and imagined a God that was much better and bigger than he'd ever imagined before. And he described this God in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And he described this God as a God who desires mercy and compassion and not sacrifice. He imagined a God who was bigger and better than anyone had ever thought of. In this time, people thought that God was super hard to please. There were so many rules. There were not just the Ten Commandments, but there were over 600 other rules that they were supposed to follow. And it was so hard to keep those straight. And it was so scary. What if I break one of those rules? We're getting ready for tax time. A lot of us, like myself, who don't have any math skills whatsoever, We'll use a tax professional to do our taxes to keep us out of jail. So we make sure we follow all the rules. Well, in Hosea's day, there was, or Micah's day, there was this fear that there are so many rules. I'm afraid I'm going to break one of them. I need a religious professional to tell me how I can keep all of God's rules so I won't break any of them. And this prophet by the name of Micah thought about the same thing. And Micah said, let me tell you about a God who is bigger and better than you ever imagined. Let me tell you about a God who doesn't have a lot of rules. And you're asking, well, what does God require of me? And the Hebrew prophet Micah says, this is what God requires of you. To treat people with fairness, to love mercy and kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things. And he presented to people a God who is bigger and better than they ever imagined. Now then let's go to another time, another place, the city of Nazareth. Jesus comes back to his hometown and he's invited to teach in the synagogue. He does a good job. The hometown people are proud of their homegrown preacher boy. They all praise him. They all give him an applause. Everybody's so happy to have Jesus back. Then Jesus stands back up and he says, I'm not done yet. And he tells them, I've got a story to tell you about two of your superhero in the Hebrew history the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And of all the stories that Jesus could have told about those two prophets, Jesus picks two stories about these two men in which God used them to minister supernaturally, miraculously, to two different people who were outside that bubble of Judaism. And by telling those two stories, Jesus was telling the people that the God that you worship is bigger and better than you ever imagined. 
that the God that you worship, that you think is only your God, and that you are the only people of God. This God cares for and loves people and is working in the lives of people that are not in your group. Well, that just didn't go over well at all. The people wanted to think, no, we own God. God is only a part of our group. And God cares for us more than he cares for anybody else. And they were so disgusted. They were so PO'd with Jesus for this story that they tried to throw Jesus off the cliff. You see, these folks were not ready for God to be out of their box. How about you? Are you ready for God to be out of the box that your system created? It's hard to let God out of the box. When we let God out of our box, it threatens our values, it threatens our prejudices, it threatens what we thought was right. They weren't ready for God to be out of the box. In the 13th century, when Christians demonize Muslims even more than Christians do today, St. Francis told his followers that if they ever found a page from the Quran, what do you think they ought to do with it? What do you think a lot of preachers would say to their congregations today to do with a page from the Quran? Step on it. Burn it. Don't read it. St. Francis told his followers, when you see a page of the Quran, Kiss it. Place it on the altar as something holy. St. Francis in the 13th century had a faith that was big enough to see that God was big enough for all people, not just his own group. Let me ask you a question. You think it's possible that God can be found outside of your box, outside of your particular system, outside of your faith and your religion? Here's the deal. What if, if we had the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the hearts to feel, We could experience spirituality in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways. This professor of psychology, Dr. Keltner, teaches at Berkeley, and he has done awesome research on the power of awe, A-W-E, to change us. He says he went to an Iggy Pop concert, and he was feeling pretty down. He was fighting his anxiety, he was feeling a lack of purpose in his life. And he said, after that Iggy Pop concert, I'd left with a sense of connection, a sense of love for people, a sense of I know who I am and I know where I'm going and what I'm supposed to do in life. Is it possible 
to have a spiritual experience in an Iggy Pop concert? I guess. When Denise and I were in Myrtle Beach this past week, we went to a show, and I'm not a big show person, but we liked this show because it was a uh, called Time Warp. And uh, Time Warp did a... I'm not a show person when, with the personators and people trying to sound like somebody else. <clears throat> but these folks were good. They did songs out of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. <clears throat> and the concert opened with three uh, artists just on the front, standing in front of a, a black uh, curtain. And they started playing a familiar tune. They started singing. Getting to the point where I don't want anymore. I'm sorry. And they kept playing. And I felt myself moved. As this band playing that great Crosby, Stills, Nash Young song, Sweet Blue, Judy Blue Eyes. I felt connected. I felt alive. I felt at one. It was a spiritual experience. Let's get back to the good professor. He did this experiment. He took some of his students to a grove of eucalyptus trees. He took another group of students and had them stand in front of a science building on campus. And then after those Students stood for just two or three minutes in front of those two objects, eucalyptus tree grove or a science building on campus. He had them do a questionnaire. And he discovered after that questionnaire that the group of students who stood in front of that grove of eucalyptus trees registered a sense of connection, a sense of love, a sense of uh, joy. They described that they had less narcissism, uh, less greed, and a, a, a lower sense of entitlement than the questionnaire revealed by those who stood in front of the science building. And then the professor staged an accident in both groups. He had a student at the science building and in the grove of eucalyptus trees, walk by and drop all their stuff, pens and papers and notebooks and books and everything else. And they discovered that those students who had stood in front of the eucalyptus trees, more of those students helped to pick up the stuff than the students who had stood in front of the science building on campus. The students who had stood in the grove of eucalyptus trees just for a couple of minutes were more altruistic, kinder, and more compassionate than those who stood in front of a science building. Just after a couple of minutes of standing in front of some trees, something happened to them that made them more humane as humans. So it makes me wonder if... Being in nature makes us better people than being in church. Maybe so. 
George Washington Carver, who was born in slavery right down the highway in Diamond, Missouri, said this. Reading about nature is fine, but if a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, he can learn more than what is in books, for they speak with the voice of God. This guy is Paul Vasquez. He's sheltered on the side of a mountain outside of Yosemite National Park. He grew his own food. He woke up every morning to one of the most beautiful views in the United States. And the world would never have known probably of, of Paul Vasquez had it not been for an experience in January of 2010. He walked out of his home and he saw in front of him, stretching across the horizon, a double rainbow. Two rainbows right on top of each other from one end to the other in fullness. And he videoed it. Here's a portion of that video. Take a look. Whoa, that's a full rainbow all the way. Double rainbow, oh my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Whoa, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Woo! oh wow, Woo! yeah, oh my, oh my, oh my God, look at that. Sounded like you went to an Iggy Pop concert. Well, that video went viral, and it brought Paul Vasquez some fame. He appeared on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. He did a commercial for Smart Water and a commercial for Microsoft. But that experience that he had was a mystical experience, and it has some things in common with other people who have had spiritual, mystical experiences. Some people get really emotional. Some people cry. Some people laugh. But the commonality of those experiences is that they're all in. And they move outside of themselves. And they discover that I am this not a single entity on this planet, but I am a part of the whole. That I belong to the planet. The planet belongs to me. I belong to you. You belong to me. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's a spiritual experience. One of my favorite writers is an Islamic mystic, Rumi. And Rumi says there are a thousand ways to kiss the ground. So my question is, could it be that God is a lot bigger than your box? Could it be that God is bigger than Christianity? David Hayward did another cartoon a few years later in 2012. Before his theological breakthrough, after his theological breakthrough. What do you see about this cartoon? 
God's still in the box. So I ask two questions. Are any of us ready to make our box bigger? That's a step. That is a step. In 2005, 2008, my box for God began to get bigger. So my next question, though, is not are you willing to let your box get bigger, but are you willing not to have a box? Are you willing to get rid of the box? To put God in the box is as silly as trying to put wind in the box. God is the wind. You can't contain him in your box. No matter how you loved your box, no matter how precious your box was to you, no matter how comfortable your box was, the wind is not comfortable. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's ravishing. Let's close our eyes. Am I not just willing to think outside of my box? Am I willing to lose my box? I pray this prayer for all of us that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I pray that you and all of you will have the power to understand the greatness of Christ's love how wide it is and how long it is, how high it is and how deep that love is. That Christ's love is greater than anyone can ever know. And I pray that you will be able to know that love. Amen.